Maybe it looked like Kulumbrusha in Denmark and the northern parts of this and other industrial ecology parks in the world where waste streams from one business become raw material inputs to another. We create closed loop systems for all of this and nothing has to go to a landfill. Instead, we can try to use biomimicry and make sure that nothing goes to waste and instead can be upcycled, maybe recycled or downcycled if it has to be. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Iyer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands which are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Our podcast hopes to bring forth and share sustainable business practices to business owners and introduce green businesses to the consumers. Where do all these initiatives begin? It begins with education, formal, informal, or self-taught. To that end, we have with us Professor Shroff, Murin Chair of Global Competitiveness and Professor of Supply Chain Management at the Palumbo Donahue School of Business Management at Duke University. Welcome, Professor Shroff. Well, thank you so much, Vidya. I'm thrilled to be here. and love talking to people about all that is happening in the world of sustainability, sharing that with my students who've also listened to your podcast. And I'm really excited to be able to figure out how to help people to integrate more sustainability into any enterprise. Yeah. So how long have you been a faculty member teaching? Yeah. The, um, well, I started at Boston College and came to Duquesne in this MBA in sustainability program in 2007. So 13 years now here. And you've been teaching sustainability the whole time, or is it something fairly new? Yeah, it's something I've been teaching the whole time. I mean, I've been doing sustainability research since I was in high school, but I came to this program as an endowed chair to purposely launch and develop a new program around sustainability in a business school. So you were way before everybody talking about sustainability. You were ahead of the game. I was trying to be. I got my first environmental research grant as a high school student. and even a publication from that before knowing exactly what I was going to do going off to college. And then college just kept me that much more interested in the topic. But now, so many people are talking about sustainability. The businesses, the governments, everywhere that you go, people talk about sustainability, about recycling. What has caused this heightened awareness and what has caused the shift? Ooh, there's so many things, right, we could layer into that. But I think um, so much more awareness now in terms of the environment around us. And that environment doesn't have to be environmental, but our social, geopolitical environment, politics right now are putting more pressure on what is and what is not sustainable. I just feel that a phone call this previous weekend from a township that wanted to talk about how they incorporate more sustainability into their 10-year plan for development of businesses, for actually infrastructure for things like transportation for homes. So I think there's so much going on that's hard to keep track of it all, but for what I see with the students that I work with and the companies that I work with, it's really about waste reduction, saving costs, and now being able to tell new stories about how their products and services align with the United Nations 17 sustainable development goals. Can sustainability be taught? Yeah, It really can. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was fortunate enough to do a sabbatical and be in Sweden and I got to work with Carl Henrik Robert, the founder of the Natural Step program, and Jaron Broman, who heads up a program there at BTH University here in Karlskrona. And in how we approach this, we use a framework for strategic sustainable development. 
And that framework tells us that there are eight sustainability um, not goals like the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, but sustainability priorities. And if we violate any of those priorities, then we know that something is not sustainable. And we can think about that in terms of the things that we take out of the earth. If we take them out of the earth faster than they can be replenished by the earth, that's not sustainable. Sustainability principle number two is if we put things into the environment faster than the environment can actually absorb them, that's not sustainable. Number three is if we you know, clear cut forests and cut things down faster than they can be grown. That is not sustainable. So if we have violations of these one through eight sustainability principles, the first three are focused on the environment. Four, five, six, seven, and eight actually look at human health, access to information, and and the human social and political elements of this. I don't really want to say political as much, but it's access to information, it's partaking in decision making. And getting away from misinformation, especially, which is a big problem that I think we have these days in terms of the amount of bad information that's out there in the world. You said you spent some time in Sweden. If you had to compare the mindset of the Swedes to the Americans in terms of sustainability, in terms of being mindful in an everyday life as a consumer and as a business owner, how would you compare? What are the couple of really stark contrasts or commonality? Yeah, well, in the Nordic countries especially, they have much better built homes so when you go by their homes in the winter you can see plants in the, in the windows and you can actually um look at these buildings and not realize that their walls may be 20 inches thick and yet we build homes in the united states that are built out of two by fours that are four inches thick plus a couple inches on on top of that so their homes are more in a passive house format of building that they're tighter envelopes lower energy consumption they have better infrastructure for mass transit and it can get around anywhere basically without a car a vehicle isn't the primary mode of transportation. So transportation is easier. Living in building is better in terms of lower energy consumption. And even just systems set up to take everything back in terms of separating all of our food waste and our recyclables. So we have compostables and recyclables that we're able to separate into, I think we had seven to nine different bins when we were there. And here in the States, it's hard to get a good cost structure for even recycling just some of the main things that we recycle, but our recycling rate is so low in the United States versus other countries, that we just don't have a good business case for some of that recycling because we also don't take into account how low the tipping fees are for us to just throw something away. I'm part of the world right now with about five landfills within 25 miles of the city, and we have some of the lowest tipping fees of any state, and it makes it that much harder for recyclers to then generate revenue from something when they have to compete against low costs for dumping. So what percent of U.S. waste is actually recycled? Oh, I'm going to give this a really low number, and I'm probably going to be wrong, so someone can correct me, but I want to think we're only recycling like 4%. Okay. And if we yeah, if we go to videos and things like this um, called The Story of Stuff, that's been out for almost, I think, nine years now, 99% of everything we make goes to a landfill within nine months. And you said you had seven or nine separate bins? To recycle, right, in Sweden? Yeah, for recycling and composting so that could take in food waste, yeah. I remember when we started recycling here in West Lafayette, Indiana, we had like three or four bins, the glass, your regular paper, your uh, plastic, and your newspaper. And then they said, oh, we should go to single stream recycling. I almost, even to, to date, I feel guilty to throw in the glass bottle <laughs> along with the newspapers and the and my milk jugs. Yeah, we've um, we've got single stream recycling here within the city of Pittsburgh. So that actually goes, we've had um, different facilities that take this in. 
We've got a facility in Neville Island that's um, 95% accurate in its sorting, and it's almost a fully automated plant. So that's why single stream can work pretty well in that location. But in just this last year or two, we've dialed back what we take because China cut off that waste supply that was going to them for recycling, whether it was or was not recycled is still a question. So now we're down to pretty much just taking corrugated cardboard, newspaper, and some plastics. And then I take my glass, which they don't take anymore. So I take that separately to another place called Construction Junction. And I drop off at a site there after we accumulate enough to fill up about a half a trunk or so in the car. And then um, that's the way in which we get it done. But yeah, when we were in Sweden, I think we had seven to nine different bins we could choose from for all of our stuff to go into. And I also read this article about the recycle sign with the number, the triangle. Yeah. It was a marketing plan by the plastic industry to give you the impression that this which holds your meat or your yogurt tub can be recycled. In fact, a lot of it is unrecyclable. Right, it is bogus. It was something that basically the chemical industry came up with to greenwash this and come up with a marketing plan to let people think they could sort and recycle this stuff when most of the time it wasn't being sorted. So I think there's a really good article, or I should say a piece on that in NPR that talks about their findings from that report. And I'm actually working with the city of Pittsburgh right now that has access to some of the same data and some of those other same reports. And we're trying to work on a closed-loop circular economy project for the city to help overcome some of those issues of the past and tie these into existing buildings and create hubs of places where we could better collect materials and find entrepreneurial startups that can take some of those materials and maybe create whole new products from them. We have one company in town called Thread that's been doing that and actually selling that fabric to shoe manufacturers and clothing manufacturers from recycled PET bottles. You've authored several books and research papers on sustainable business practices. One of your latest book is Integrated Management. What is integrated management? Yeah, integrated management is the realization that sustainability is already part of every business, but to what extent it's integrated is to be determined. So an integrated approach is one in which we actually look at sustainability and its use across business functions and then out even into entire supply chains. And if we scale this, it's not just for the business environment. It also includes our buildings, our homes, and our cities, and the infrastructure that connects everything. So integrated management really is talking about how sustainability can be and already is an integrated piece of every part of a business in terms of the functions, accounting, finance, operations, marketing, new product development, even strategy, public affairs, human resources and anything else we can think of. You talked a little bit about what you are implementing in Pittsburgh. Could you go into a little bit more details, or is it too early? No, no. These are parts of the um, live consulting projects I do with my teams of MBAs, and it's part of an experiential learning program that we've set up as our one-year MBA. Every semester for one year, students are in new teams and on new consulting projects, with sustainability being the focus. So five projects that I'm running right now, one of them involves the city, um, Pittsburgh is a great city in terms of a small kind of footprint, but a, you know, a metropolitan city, lots of infrastructure that needs updating and things that we can actually move into this space. Amazon was, you know, looking at us as one of those competing cities a while ago to try to move to, but we've already got over a billion dollars invested here in autonomous vehicles and the auto industry. Um, we've got a lot going on in terms of healthcare, pharmaceuticals, not so much so, but um, healthcare industry in general with insurance companies that also provide services around that. 
and lots happening in terms of tech, robotics, biotech, even converging across some industry sectors. There are lots of nice clusters here in which things are happening where sustainability is part of this in terms of green chemistry. We've got a vibrant green building alliance and a lot happening in terms of high performance buildings in this space. When most people think of us as the Rust Belt, in reality, we're very green and have a lot of sustainability activities. One of the things that you talk about in your book is the bottom line. So there is this concept of a triple bottom line, which is profit, people, and planet. John, John Elkington coined that phrase over 25 years ago and coming up with a TBL and triple bottom line. In the book, we extend this, and I've worked with and talked to John. And he's also written an endorsement of the book. And he even, on one of the Harvard blogs, mentioned that we should change the triple bottom line to an integrated bottom line, which is what I have in the book, and that we can better conceptualize companies in terms of you know profit and loss margins and P&L statements and these types of things, because that's what we've been measuring for so long. And if we extend that into also including measures of environmental performance and social performance, we'll have a much better and more dynamic understanding of what a firm is doing in terms of its performance. Right now, some say in some of the resources in the book talk about we're valuing companies while only looking at 20% of what we can measure when 80% of the value of a company is in its intangibles. And we already measure intangible things like brand. If you think of Pepsi or Coke and how much they put on their balance sheet for brand, it's in the multiple billions of dollars. Yet it's an intangible. And we can extend these intangibles to include environmental and social performance to have a better picture of what a company's really doing and whether or not they're at risk. While on paper, they may seem very profitable, but in reality, they may be contributing to things that are very detrimental to the environment and not actually engaged in providing better social performance, but instead eroding the social fabric of our society. Those are things I'm pretty sure people would want to be looking at is we have access to databases now. We can get to 400 to 700 environmental and social performance metrics per publicly traded firm in the United States. Is some of this part of sustainable investment, uh, socially conscious investment? There's a movement now where people want to invest in firms which follow their beliefs. Yeah, and that's that's a great wave to catch as people are looking at SRI or socially responsible investing. There's really good information from the United Nations on socially responsible investing. Um, the other parts of these movements are crowdsourcing and starting companies and new products and actually looking at impact investing. So slightly different terminology, but people that are putting forth money to invest in some startup or some company or an idea because that startup, that product, or whatever it is they're putting into the marketplace provides environmental and social benefits on top of a financial benefit. And with some of the work that we do even here on high-performance buildings and some of the things that are baked into this book and some other books that are written, what we're finding is that the financial returns on these things are really good. And there's even green bonds that are now coming out of this, and municipalities are getting involved, whole cities are being involved in this. And then when we look at just the financials, it's good to begin with. It's a better investment when we start including environmental impacts avoided. And we look at social performance, for some things, it can be 10 times better than the financial return. And that's fantastic. That's, I think, news people want to hear about. And a story entrepreneurs can tell about how their product or how their service is better than something else in the marketplace. And you said there were some metrics that you have to measure sustainability performance and social performance? Yeah, well, people can start by maybe going to B Corp, right? So B Corp has a toolkit available for people that want to start reporting environmental and social performance metrics. We can also go to SASB, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, SASB, 
and they break out 84 different industry sectors and tell you what's most material to those industry sectors for reporting in terms of environmental and social performance. So they're another great platform to get to. Um, outside of that, you can look at some of the impact investing kind of websites that are out there. I want to say there's some of the impact investing sites. They also have great toolkits in terms of what to measure and then report about your product or your services. And then kind of the Uber one overall, if we go to the Global Reporting Initiative, basically every company now out of the S&P 500 is reporting something in terms of a sustainability report. And that report typically falls under the guidelines of a Global Reporting Initiative or GRI report. And they're also mapping a lot of what they do now into the 17 United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So blockchain is a word which is in vogue. How can blockchain be used to create a transparent, sustainable environment? And when I say environment, I mean an organization, their supply chain. Yeah, I really think of this in the context of an enterprise, right? So an enterprise can engage in and invest in the potential that blockchain is touting. Then we can actually see blockchain becoming a, a, a triple ledger approach to understanding a transaction. So when we have a purchase order in for something that we're getting a raw material from from around the world. We can actually have the chain of custody follow that product till it gets to us. We fabricate it, move it into another product domain, get it out into the market space. People may use it, consume it, dispose of it, or maybe it back in a closed loop system. But we can actually, and I'm working with a company right now, even looking at how RFID technology can follow those materials around the world. And every time that transaction takes place or it changes hands or it goes to a different mode of transportation, it can keep track of the environmental impacts from that mode of transportation because it'll know what kind of truck it is, it's on, what kind of engine it has, what kind of fuel is going into that engine, whether it's on a train, a ship, or a plane. And then we can take that thing all the way through chain of custody and have transparency in an entire global supply chain to then give the end consumer some information. And right now, if you use something like an app on your phone called um, The Good Guide, you can take a picture of a barcode of um, something on a shelf in a store and see its environmental and social performance versus the same product category and other products on the shelf next to it. So blockchain enables that type of information to be captured faster, hopefully more accurately, and give consumers and others along the value chain an opportunity to peer into that global value chain and say, you know, this is a good supplier or I can find a better supplier maybe that has lower impacts on the environment, a better cost structure, and does more for their employees and has better diversity and reward those type of companies with our business. So I see blockchain as a hugely potential thing that I haven't been able to get my hands into the virtual cube in terms of the blocks right now. But I know conceptually what it's capable of doing. And I've even been in Estonia where at the whole country level, at the federal level, they're using blockchain already to take care of all their transactions and behind the scenes processing for the country. So when you talked about blockchain, and you are talking about a multi-million dollar enterprise with huge investments, with RFID, put in thousands or tens of thousands of individual products. There are two problems I see with that. What does the small person who's artisans, who's crafting things, who's making in small batches and not having these huge minimum order quantities, what do they do? And the secondly, when you have these huge minimum order quantities, when you're building so much in scale, that's when there is a lot of waste too, right? So in terms of the artisans, 
I kind of rely on my phone for everything, right? And I think a lot of people do. So smartphones are ways in which that can enable their transaction of information every time they do a small batch of something or make an individual product, take a picture of it, put some information out there into the world in terms of that being available, and then have that be able to be tracked or followed with that product and try to differentiate their products and without having to have an RFID tag attached to it or something like that. So I still think that the innovation comes from those entrepreneurs that find new ways to figure out how to kind of pin that information to their products. And right now I kind of see smartphones as the ways to do a lot of this through apps, but maybe that's too naive of me in that sense, but that's a small scale. And at large scale, which with the, what you're getting at, I think in terms of some of this, what it should help us avoid is to avoid all the waste. You know, greenhouse gas emissions are just one other form of waste. So it should be able to help us avoid those and also create closed loop systems so that all the stuff in the past that was a waste that was thrown away should no longer have to be. You know, let's find a world that can operate without landfills or domes. And what would that look like? Maybe it looked like Columbrusha in Denmark and the northern parts of this and other industrial ecology parks in the world where waste streams from one business become raw material inputs to another. We create closed loop systems for all of this and nothing has to go to a landfill. Instead, we can try to use biomimicry and make sure that nothing goes to waste and instead can be upcycled, maybe recycled or downcycled if it has to be. What could be the motivator if there were two or three initial baby steps a company could take in their journey to become sustainable? These are existing companies. Existing companies, probably it's harder for them to switch because of infrastructure and investments that would be needed to make the change. But if there were two or three just very small steps that they had to take, could you recommend? Of course, this is a really broad question because it depends on the industry you are in. But in general, what would you recommend? Yeah, so if I start with energy use, uh, I think energy is nice and that's easily quantifiable. You get a utility bill every month from your company. So you can see energy consumption in terms of electric and natural gas. You can go to websites like greenandsave.com and their master ROI table and see 70 different options for good paybacks in terms of putting things like a programmable thermostat in a home or a small office renovation and can look at how much energy you consume and think about energy consumption. There's always a really good payback and lots of alternatives available for us to create low energy or net zero types of buildings with really good paybacks on this. And again, if we look at the indoor air quality, if you're hiring employees that are going to be in those spaces, if you have a high-performance building that has good indoor air quality, they're going to be healthier when working there. They're going to want to come into those spaces also if this is an innovative space to be working in. Our homes and even our business school, we actually have indoor air quality monitors in our business school. We know that it's two to three times better indoor air quality inside the school than it is walking outside. But we happen to be in a city with the eighth worst polluted air quality um, numbers in the country from the United States. So I would look at energy as a, a great place to start. It's the low-hanging fruit for some of this stuff. You can expand that into things like worker health and productivity and indoor air quality. And you know, recycling and those types of things, I think, are available to us already. We can take better advantage of those types of systems and closed-loop systems especially and try to look for how we can better source and have closed-loop systems wherever we are located for whatever materials we might need. And if you want to create your own energy, renewables right now, and 73% of the United States are cheaper than, you know, if you do it yourself, it's cheaper than getting electricity from your utility company. 
So there are great incentive programs available to do this and to take control of that cost structure. And what are the tools that managements could use to see the change in implementation? Yeah, a great question, right? Because you could pose that question from management from finance, management from accounting, management from operations, you know, what, what do they need? And some of it's just the awareness that it's already part of every one of those professional associations. If you go to meetings for accountants, you know, there's already a professional association that has all the tools available to you to show you how to integrate sustainability. Same thing for finance and lots of high level stuff at the United Nations level, the United Nations global compact companies that have signed on to do this and then drill down into more detail with other sites for this. Same thing with operations in terms of waste elimination. It's an extension of total quality management to total quality environmental management to then integrated management over time. Human resources or organizational behavior have all looked at this in different ways in terms of how do we go out and get really good talented people and have them want to work for an innovative company so we can sell them on sustainability being part of what they do and why they'd want to work with that company. We can extend this to our supply chain people um, in terms of procurement, inbound and outbound logistics, in terms of choosing providers that have better performance and lower impacts on the environment. When I mentioned all those different performance variables that are out there for all publicly traded firms in the United States, hundreds of environmental and social performance metrics are already out there. So you can find this information and screen your suppliers for it or bake it into your contracts when you either want to sell to somebody else and do B2B commerce, or if you're doing B2C commerce kind of transactions, and actually bake these things into your contracts to say that you want to work with suppliers that are more environmentally friendly. You want to procure materials from certain types of certified you know, suppliers, whether it's an ISO certification, the International Organization of Standards, for things like 26,000 would be for corporate social responsibility. 50,000 in their standards are for energy management. 14,000 are for energy management systems. So there's a lot of standards out there we could bake into those things to show that it's already happened. We already know what best practices are, and we just need to get people up to speed on the educational aspect of this and that it's not as hard as they might think it is. It's already been happening. There are good company examples out there doing it. And if you're not doing it at your own company, there's an opportunity that you can close that gap, save money, reduce waste, and become a better provider of a product or a service. So we've been talking a lot about businesses, enterprise, and companies. As a consumer, how could I make an impact? One way demanding better choices made by the enterprise. But one of the things that I was thinking when you talked about Sweden is the houses. Our houses are built with two-by-fours. Correct me if I'm wrong. I do not think there is any other country in the world where they build houses this way. In Canada, even all of Europe, Asia, they don't build houses with this sort of a a very... I'd say they're going for low cost. Very low cost alternative. But one of the arguments is that home ownership in the United States is far higher than most other countries, right? So how do you balance this? You want people to have home ownership, to have a sense of belonging, that brings a lot of advantages. And we cannot all of a sudden change how we build houses, right? Well, we can incrementally make them better. And we can actually change how we build houses. When I talked to that township over the weekend about how they wanted to change their 10-year plan, one of the things that they were considering was to change the ordinances for how homes are built. And even in Pittsburgh right now in the city, we have an ordinance in the city that all buildings have to release their 
utility data so we can actually see how well performing those buildings are. And then we can put in building codes that actually call for not just building to code, because right now if you build a home or any building to code, you're typically building the worst structure you can legally build without being liable for something. It's not energy efficient. It's not taking into account of human health and productivity inside it. So instead we can look at LEED, so LEED, Leading Energy and Environmental Design Standards. We can look at Energy Star Standards for any building. We can then also look at Passive House, if we go to passive house, that's usually much better in terms of much tighter envelopes, much lower energy consumption. So for a 1,000 square foot home passive house, all you need to heat it is a hairdryer versus, you know, right now my home, uh, we're looking at something that's about 150% larger than the average home in Pennsylvania, 2,000 feet. Yeah, we consume 50% less energy in our home, even though it's almost twice as big than most average homes in Pennsylvania for the state. And all we did was a whole bunch of simple stuff that is passive approaches, better insulation, tightening the envelope, um, putting energy start appliances inside it to bring down our consumption levels first before I then put active systems on the roof, which are renewables. So I have two systems up there, one I own, one's a purchase price agreement because I wanted to look at that business model, but I generate enough electricity for the home and then offload two megawatts a year to a car. So I can drive a car $176 for a year's worth of driving and 10,000 miles. And it's much more cost effective. But we can influence building codes. And we can just better inform. I had a discussion actually just today with um, a real estate agent and how they're trying to get banks on board and real estate agents on board with understanding which homes are better performing. So they could more easily sell them to people that want a home that they don't have to put a lot of work into or that's real leaky. In terms of you can go to your utility company typically and have somebody come out and do a blower door test on your home at no cost. Utilities usually have money set aside to pay for these things because they want to encourage people to reduce energy consumption. It's part of their legal requirements as a utility. So you can have someone come pressurize your house, see how leaky it is, and then go through steps to better insulate it, better seal openings and bring down the consumption that you have inside that home. And we can do this without an ordinance. We can just do this with well-informed people that want a better space that's healthier to live in and cost less money to run. Do you think some nudges from the government in terms of ordinance or laws will help in the growth of such initiatives? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a full-blown, everyone, all hands on deck kind of an approach is going to get us the biggest impacts. I know that my conversations with entrepreneurs here in our VC world also and others are that they're not waiting for the Fed to come in and tell them what to do with the regulation. They're trying to create spaces and places and things beyond what the government's you know getting involved in because it's just too slow and it's too uncertain. But when governments get involved in this, we also get things like right now, Pittsburgh is part of the 2030 challenge. It was started by 2030 architecture, but all of our buildings downtown by 2030 will reduce by half their energy and their water consumption. And all buildings after 2030 will be net zero carbon buildings. That wasn't a policy issue. It was just a challenge that was put out globally to cities. And it's been taken up now in all countries and all cities all over the place. We also do have um, a city, though, that is creating ordinances to better nudge these things. The government has helped in the past when it's given support to renewables and trying to you know, get incentives like 30% cost for materials. That's how the Fed was supporting this in the past. There's other incentive systems for purchasing e-vehicles but only up to, say, 200,000 of them based on the manufacturer. So people need to be some of the early adopters if they want to get some of these advantages as these technologies are coming on board in the marketplace. On that inspiring note, I would like to thank Dr. Strauf coming on Mindful Businesses. Yeah, thank you. And I hope your listeners are 
interested enough to better explore what all is available to them because there is so much happening in sustainability. I love hearing about and seeing people like yourself doing this in terms of this podcast and others. As we all are here to help create a more sustainable world, the opportunities are more than I can ever talk to you about in a brief podcast. And I think all of your listeners have their own ideas of how we can make this place better. And I'd love to hear from them if they ever want to send me an email or have questions for myself or even look into our program. We have a one-year MBA program in sustainability that integrates sustainability across all courses. International study abroad is part of that in the spring and live consulting projects every semester on different teams as I want to use those teams to also go out and help companies become more sustainable. So also if you yourself or others that are listening know of companies that need help, we do this at no cost and set up really fun, engaging, dynamic projects for my students to be involved in and for myself and other faculty to help with. And I would love to take on a new challenge that I don't know what the answer is to yet and try to help someone's business, their product, or their service. Would you like to share your email address? Sure. The email address is the same spelling as my last name with an R after that. So that'll be S-R-O-U-F-E-R at D-U-Q dot E-D-U. And the D-U-Q stands for Duquesne University. So that's how you can more easily reach me. I look forward to hearing from anybody and any kind of questions you might have and whatever help we might be able to provide you. If you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show, send us a message on our Facebook or Instagram page. Our Facebook address is Mindful Businesses and our Instagram handle is mindful underscore businesses underscore podcast or visit our website, which is mindfulbusinesses.com podcast.com. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. We recorded this podcast in Lafayette, Indiana. Tatum Gale composed the music for this podcast. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.